This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. I'm Helen Farmer. This is the Afternoons with Helen Farmer podcast. We're catching up with our experts, the real life stories and talking health on the show, both mental and physical, in conversation with author, coach and education wellbeing consultant Linda Bonner. As we talked teens, some of the challenges facing this age group in 2023. We're also tackling fatty liver disease, some of the myths around that and why do our kids keep getting sick? Plus in our legal clinic special, it was all about employment law from gratuity to bonuses. What are your rights? We were finding out. So delighted to be joined by an old friend, a familiar face. Linda Bonner is here. She was in the Middle East for 15 years, is now based in New York. She's an education wellbeing consultant. She's a trainer. She's an author. And... Uh, I'm so happy to see you again because <laughs> I've so enjoyed our conversations in the past and now I feel as my kids are hurtling towards teenage years, I think I think we need you more than ever. Linda, how are you? Oh my gosh, Helen. I'm really well, thank you. And I'm so happy to be here with you as well. Thank you for having me. Pleasure. Now, for anyone that's not familiar with you and your work, tell us a little bit about your background and your areas of expertise. Thanks, Helen. So I was a teacher myself for 15 years. I taught in various schools around the Middle East. I taught at home in Dublin, in Ireland. And I left teaching, it's about seven years ago now, actually. Mm-hmm. Always loved teaching history, loved the students that I used to teach and found myself quite stressed, actually, in my job. And some of my students were also stressed. And honestly, Helen, I did not have the toolkit to manage my stress in the way, in the most effective way. Mm-hmm. And I recognize the same in some of my colleagues and also in some of my students as well. Now, a friend of mine was doing a coaching course at the time, and I thought, oh, I roll, here we go. Another coach. <laughs> Another coach, <laughs> I know, I know. And I had lots of conversations with her, Helen, and it was the first time, you know, because I've been through my own mental health and well-being journey as well. So it was the first time that somebody asked me more powerful questions, more action-oriented and solution-focused questions, instead mm. of, why did that happen to you, Lyndon? Why do you think somebody said that to you at that point in time? And it made such a difference, Helen, that I started using those tools myself, taking them into the classroom. And as a result, I was having much better conversations with the young people I was teaching. I know for a fact they went home and had completely different conversations with their parents at home and with their friends also. And so it's it's just when we when we ask ourselves and other people better questions, Helen, we just get better answers. Hopefully I can ask him some good questions between now and three o'clock. Um, but you've touched on a couple of really interesting points really briefly. And we're going to be delving into a number of them yep. um, a bit more in depth. One is the amount of stress that teachers are under. And oh, my goodness, it's a conversation for another day. But thank you for acknowledging yep. that, because I, I know an awful lot of teachers who are thinking about leaving the profession or aren't feeling properly supported, not just here, but definitely internationally as well. And as you say, if you're not feeling your best, you can't give your best to your pupils um, and we know that the amount of stress that young people are under right now I, I don't know I don't know I'm keen to get your take on this you know what do you think has changed about being in that teenage age bracket when we think back to maybe a decade or so ago for example oh my gosh Helen where do we even start with this right and I think the number one thing is obviously social media and internet access and our young people nowadays have they have literally access to everything at the touch of a button Mm. and that's scary in a number of different ways the internet is brilliant I'm not here to you know to generalize or anything else it's not about demonizing because this is very much part of of you know, all of our lives, my phones, we know about an inch away from me. Um, and we know how positive it can be for connection. Yes. It's a very integral part of socialization. And we saw this, of course, during uh, during COVID, that socializing yeah. piece. But we're kind of in uncharted waters as parents with this. And I think that's something that we can't underestimate. 
Completely. And when it comes to social media, so again, it's not only a tool, but it's also a stressor in young people's mm -hmm. lives. And it's one of the, it's, um, it's a device, it's a tool that they use to connect with the world as well. So it's incredibly important to them. And if we as adults, I'm not a parent, Helen, you know, you know that well yourself as well. And I'd never tell or pretend how to parent. When we as adults, if we inquire and if we appear curious about our young person's experience of social media and of how they're using their devices, again, we can have different conversations around it. And so many times I hear parents, you know, and it's the, they're on their phone again. They spend too much time on their phone and all of these things. And I'll say to a parent, what's their experience on their phone? What are they using it yeah, for? What, what need is being met? Exactly, right? And a lot of the time it is communication. But what a young person will also tell me is, my parents don't even ask. They make assumptions. Mm. They make assumptions that I'm on this stupid thing and that I'm doing something that I shouldn't be when actually maybe I am using it for school. Now, yes, chances are they are using it for something outside of educational purposes, right? That might not be completely healthy and helpful, but we don't know unless we ask Helen. And I think there is a strong argument for kind of meeting in the middle. It's very easy yes. to say, and I feel like this about some elements of technology myself, uh, that's for other people. That's for them. This, this is them. This is me. And unfortunately, where danger lies is in that ignorance and in that that silence somewhere in the middle where we're going i don't really know what they're doing but i don't like it you're listening to the uae's number one talk radio station this is afternoons on dubai i 103.8 We've just been talking about social media and a message just come in saying, any advice on how to stop teens over-analyzing WhatsApps and their friendships? Oh, tricky. Completely, Helen. What a great question as well. And I'm so, I, I love when parents ask these questions. I think it's so important. If we break this down to its simplest form, right, any of us can over-analyze at any moment in time. It's one of those thinking traps that we can fall into. I do all the time. Oh my God. Someone doesn't There's reply to one, a Helen. message and I'm There's like, another one. Oh, I'm, I'm like, <laughs> did I say something wrong? I mean, think, yes. think back to when I was dating. Oh my goodness, you'd go oh down this gosh. like rabbit hole of a, a nightmare. And this, yes. is, and this is with a fully developed brain, never mind a teenager. And that's another good point as well understanding that your teenager's brain is not fully developed until what like they're 25. in their early 20s mid 20s you know different stages so if we look at that right encouraging your young person at home to get themselves out of that thinking trap now in order to do that they have to be able they have to be aware that they're in it in the first place mm -hmm. so if we think of that rabbit hole how far down the rabbit hole have we gone so you can ask your young person just to help them separate fact from fiction. What do you know to be true? What do you mind reading into this? What assumptions are you making? What's the story that you're telling yourself? What a great question to ask anyone. Mm -hmm. What's the story that you're telling yourself about this? Okay, that's interesting. How much of that is true? How much of that do you know to be fact? Not what you think is true, but what's actually fact. And having that conversation, it is so powerful, Helen, just to have those open and honest conversations to find out what their experience is. Not ours, but theirs. This leads us really nicely to a longer message that came through actually on social media. Um, and thank you for raising this, Jen, saying, I've never been an anxious or overprotective parent. Far from it. But as my kids approach their teens, I'm really worried about the potential for them to end up in some sort of awful situation. This is what made me smile. I look back in horror at some of the near misses I had as a teen in the 90s. Yep. Um, somehow I came out relatively unscathed, but some of my friends weren't so lucky. Mm -hmm. Alongside those issues, there are so many risks like cyber abuse, bullying, social media. How on earth do you balance a teen's need for greater independence against the risk of them getting caught up or involved in something horrific? How do you equip them to make good decisions and stay safe? Oh my gosh, here we go. Well, wow. I know. And you know, hearing you talk, Helen, I'm reminded of what I was getting up oh to as goodness. a young person. Oh my goodness, it's an oh, absolute gosh. miracle. 
fact that I'm here today. <laughs> and you know, two honestly, and when I had daughters, my mum said to me, not immediately after giving birth, but a few days later, she's like, Helen, if anyone deserves to have a horrible teenager, it's you. Because oh, I was, I was so deceptive. I, I get, I was all right at school, so we got away with quite a lot. But mm. I was constantly those risky behaviours, pushing my luck, lying constantly. Is that just what the vast majority of teens go through or kind of need to go through? Great. And I love the way you said what they need to go through. And what we've seen as well, what research and what data tells us that since COVID, there's an increase in riskier behavior as well. Interesting. Is that that kind of making up for lost time? (laughs) Maybe. And I laugh at that. But again, right, nervous laughter because I know what I was doing at that age. Mm -hmm. And also, yeah, I had to do it, Helen, because I needed to find out. As a young person, we don't know. There are so many things we don't know. Again, if we go back to it's a brain thing. Where do I fit in the world? Where where do I fit in my family, in my class, amongst my peers, in the world, just in general? Mm -hmm. What's my role in this? What's okay? What do I want to be doing? What do I not, right? How do I belong to a tribe? And young people are very smart. They are very, very smart and they know it's more important for them to belong to their friendship groups at particular points in adolescence than it is to be, you know, to have those strong family relationships sometimes. I'm mm-hmm. never, you know, it's not every, every teenager at all. So they engage in the risky behavior and sometimes they know it is not the right thing to do. However, again, if we think about this logically, they weigh it up. More, more important to be accepted and to feel belong, a sense of belonging to their peer group mm-hmm. than what is mum or dad or whoever's at home going to say to me. So advice to Jen and any other parents, <coughs> myself included, who might be worried about this time. And, you know, we're going to talk a little bit more about building and maintaining those relationships, but maybe we can touch on it now. What can you do to kind of future-proof your relationship with your teen? So they can come to you. And there's a saying I always think about, you know, if you don't listen to your little kids about little, about little things, they won't come to you with the big kids, basic, big stuff when they're Absolutely. big kids. So well, how can we foster that relationship? A number of things here, Helen, right? First of all, if, you're, if your son or daughter does come to you about a little thing, chances are it could be a big thing in their head. By the time they've got to you. To it. Mm-hmm. So any of those, you know, any of those softeners as such, like this isn't a big thing, but it's a big thing. Or I'm a bit worried about this. Whatever we, you know, whatever you do in those moments, listen as best as you can, right? And check it out. So it's it's not a case of, oh, don't worry about that. Let's not brush that away. Mm-hmm. If somebody comes to us and says, I'm worried, let's do our best to make the space and to listen. The other important thing is that space, Helen, a non-judgmental safe space for your young person to express how they're feeling. If they don't have it, they'll find another trusted adult. And look, it's great. It's not maybe that as parents, we have to be the ones who create that space. As long as your teenager or your young person has a trusted adult to hear them out, Mm -hmm. a teacher, another mentor in their lives, you know, a, a, a coach, an aunt, an uncle, whoever it is, fantastic. But that listening space is so important. And non-judgment as best as we can as well. So if you say you're going to listen and you're not going to get mad, you got Helen. I know. <laughs> I, say I know. I know. Because I know what I'm like. I know what my husband's like. But, but you're human as well, of Helen. Of course. And I think we all, it all just comes from a good place of wanting yes. our kids to be safe. Yes. So as a parent or as an adult, right, if you find then that you need space, if you find that you're getting frustrated or you're getting angry, be open with your young person. Tell them that and tell them that you need space. They want to know they want to know that you've made mistakes along the way. They want that sense of, a, they want a common sense of humanity and understanding. Now, the conversation around mental health has changed an awful lot when we're mm. looking at the last decade or so. And in some ways, I think hugely, hugely positively. I really, really do. Um, some really interesting statistics out of the UK suggesting around 20% of adolescents experiencing a mental health problem in any given year. Yep. 50% of mental health problems established by the age of 14, 75% by the age of 24. So let's talk a little bit about the importance of 
early intervention. What are your thoughts on, on that? So important. Full stop. And whether it's done at school, whether it's done at home, and you know that, you know, I'm the co-founder of the Wellbeing app, Upstrive, like we, we partner with schools to help teachers do exactly this, mm-hmm. to identify challenges that young people are going through as early as we possibly can. Again, we're all human, things can fall through the net, but it's about, again, catching ourselves in that moment as best as we can. And intervention can look like different things for different people in different moments, Helen. Well, we've had a message saying, my child's on Prozac, is it addictive? Let's talk a little bit about, as you're saying, kind of interventions. So if we, if we look at interventions, again, at its most simple level, an intervention could be an adult saying to a young person, how are you feeling today? Mm-hmm. And doing that check-in. Here's what I've noticed, right? So it's presenting the facts, not what I think is going on or mind reading. I've noticed this, I've heard this, I've seen this. And I wanted to check in. For, coming from a place of love and concern, because I care about you so much, I wanted to check in and see if you're okay. It could be something very different, right? Like a peer-to-peer relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, another trusted adult in the equation as well. And that's not always, again, if we think then outside of the school environment or outside of the family environment, there could be a need for something different. So it could be a school counsellor, it could be a psychologist, a psychiatrist, it could be medication, it could be yoga, it could be a different tool. This is all about equipping the young people in our lives with different tools that they need in different moments of time. What's the resource that's needed? We have got master NLP coach, trainer, author, Linda Bonner with us today as we talk about teens' well-being, mental health. She's an education well-being consultant, author of a number of books, and has a real special interest in this age group. And we've had so many messages, Linda, both through my social media and on the text line as well. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about anxiety, if mm. you don't mind, because when I was growing up, it would be like, oh, she's a, she's a bit of a worrier. And that, would, and that would be it, you know, worried about exams or friendships or boys, girls, whatever. Mm. And now it seems like we're very keen to have a diagnosis of that anxiety disorder. <laughs> Is that just my perception? No, I don't think so, Helen. And I think there's, look, again, it's different things for different people, but we've got to understand... What is the young person's experience, right? And drill down to really understand that even more. So there's a huge difference between worry and anxiety. Massive. There's a stress between the stress. There's a difference between stress and and something else that the young person ex- is experiencing as well. Now, what I often find is when I work with young people, they can be quick to label themselves Definitely. because it's something they hear. I'm so depressed. Well, there's a massive sense of that feeling of belonging as well. That tribalism. There we go. Right. So when they hear and it's again, it's not all young people. Right. That is not what I'm saying. Sometimes when they hear and they they pick it up on social media and they pick it up in different forms of media. I'm so depressed. I'm so anxious. I'm so worried. I'm so this, you know, and they they sometimes label themselves without even knowing Mm -hmm. what that really means. Mm And this is all, like we were saying earlier, Helen, this is all, it's all on a spectrum. It's not an either or at all. And it can happen at different moments of a young person's day, week, month, life or whatever. But it's helping them when we have deeper conversations with them around what they're experiencing. Mm -hmm. So is it something general like, I'm anxious about school in general, or I'm worried about a test on Tuesday with Mrs. Bonner? No one would be worried about time with you. Helen, you're very kind. No, but I think, but (laughs) let's talk, let's talk um, anxiety around school, because I've had a number of messages on this. One saying, please address teenage burnout during exams. Mm -hmm. My son's doing GCSEs. And Terry saying, um, hi both. I'm extremely worried about the amount of academic pressure on these kids. We've purposely chosen a non-selective school and our son has some lovely friends. But with other parents and of course teachers, so much of the conversation comes back to grades, choices and future options. He's only 14. Is this just in Dubai? No, 
absolutely not. It's international, Helen. I think what sometimes what we can be we can be quick to assume is that you know pressure is only here in Dubai. Young people are only feeling pressures. Adults feel mm. pressures here. International. No matter where a young person grows up or where they live now, they experience a, a lot of the same challenges in life. And if it's not academic pressure, it could be something about body image. It could be something about how do they get on with their parents, like we said earlier. Where do they fit in in their tribe? Well, let's talk academic pressure then. Because mm. Dubai, you know, you, I think the fee-paying aspect adds another element of pressure, to be honest, whether we like yes. to admit that or not. Um, so what can we do then as parents to offset that, to balance it, to support them, whatever the grade, hopefully? Exactly. And again, I keep saying it, it's about the young person's experience, right? Understanding, so helping them be really self-aware about where that pressure comes from. Mm-hmm. Yes, it could f- come from a teacher like Mrs. Bonner, right? Does it come from a place of care and concern? Hopefully, yes. Okay, or is there something else? So understanding the different components of pressure and what's behind them. Sometimes it's the young person that's putting pressure on themselves, Helen, for a number of different reasons. Sometimes that comes from home and it might come not consciously, not like you have to do well at school. There could be little, sometimes our young people pick up on messages and they put a particular meaning to it. And the young person can then, you know, create their own story from that and think, oh my gosh, so this is what they mean. You know, I'm, I'm more accepted when I do well because, you know, mum or dad just said to me, well done on getting that particular We're really grade. proud of We're you. We're really proud of you and that's attached to that. Yeah. What about this specific question about teenage burnout? You know, exam season coming pretty darn fast. Any practical tips, any advice for hopefully keeping that anxiety manageable? Definitely. And again, understanding your young person's experience. What do they think about it? How are they feeling about it? How are they behaving about it? Listen to how your young person talks about it just in general, Mm -hmm. in passing. You know, is it something like, yeah, I feel okay about the exams. I got to do well in these. And listen to the tone of voice that, that young people use around when they're talking about their studies and their academics and the pressure as well. Listen out for any comparisons, comparative traps as well. Are they comparing themselves to their peers? Has a teacher made a comment? And that doesn't mean that a teacher has made like some really negative comment. Again, maybe it's something in passing and it's really meant well. But in that moment in time, a different meaning has been placed on it. I cannot stress the importance of having these open and honest conversations with young people. And even saying as an adult, you know what? I don't know what it's like for you at school right now. Tell me more about what you're experiencing. The exams are coming up. How are you feeling about them? Offering support, asking a young person, how can I support you best right now? I love that. Let's see if we can help out this anonymous listener saying, um, great timing. My daughter's year six has always been anxious, drives herself really hard to be good and perfect, quote unquote, and it's definitely taking its toll. We do breathing and distraction techniques. Um, I've read some great books, but it's just not enough. I want to do something else and thinking of some professional help. I'm fortunate to be able to pay, but don't know where to start. And I think that addresses something that an awful lot of parents like, okay, well, do I go to a family doctor? Do I go to a psychologist, a psychiatrist? You know, who is the person that can, you know, fix this situation where do you recommend starting linda with the young person themselves always 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 and if we think about again to the early part of the conversation with thinking traps and falling into the rabbit hole mm-hmm. the p word as i call it my gosh helen if i could remove two words from the english language it would be perfection and should but you know that's mm-hmm. me perfection's terrible um, and but it's not even you know if we, I've spoken to so many young people about perfectionism. So I want to be perfect. I want to get this perfect. And I'll say to them, what does that mean? Oh, you know, 
I no. don't know. Tell me more about it. Oh, you know. Same with adult Helen, anyone who talks about perfection. Now, sometimes this is easier, right? Well, I want to get 100% to my math test. All right, okay. And when you do, what does that mean? What well, means I'm good? Tell me more about that. So again, creating that space, helping them, to, helping them to understand what it is that they're trying to achieve. And what do they get from that? So again, what's the meaning? What do they think they're going to, what difference is that thing going to make? Um, Linda, tell us a little bit briefly about the, the books you've written in, in the, you know, for parents and, and young people, but also the app that you're working with and how to con- contact you, because we've sadly run out of time, although we haven't run out of questions. <laughs> Helen, thank you so much. So Press Play is all about empowering young people with the skills, tools and techniques they need to overcome challenges successfully and move forward confidently. Mm -hmm. We have turned Press Play into an app, but it is so much more than an app that our schools are using. We've got about 20,000 students here in the Middle East using Upstrive, Helen. It is fantastic. We have been able to intervene early in young people's lives and help teachers prevent prevent self-harm, Helen, prevent even suicide, support young people through eating disorders and not that's not because we solve all problems it's because we help people intervene early so that the young person can get the right help that they need for them and that's so important now if you send the word teen to me on 4001 i will send you the link for the app and the book and anything else you need from linda's side as i said such a hot topic and one we really have only scratched the surface of over the last hour so linda i cannot thank you enough for your time today helen i can't thank you enough for bringing up this subject again it's so important we'll definitely have you back Healthy Habits. On Afternoons with Helen Farmer. We are busting some myths and taking your questions on the show this afternoon as we talk about fatty liver disease. Now, the liver is one of the body's most vital organs. It separates those nutrients and waste as it moves through the digestive tract. But fatty liver disease is on the rise globally. Around 25% of the population suffering from this condition and many people not even aware that they have it. So between now and half past, we're tackling how to take care of the liver, bust some myths. Dr. Shiva Kumar is with us today, the Department chair of gastroenterology hepatology digestive disease institute at the cleveland clinic abu dhabi and he's taking your questions on 4001 dr shiva how are you good thank you helen thank you for having me on delighted to be on your show today well as i said there seems to be a lot of information also misinformation about the liver and indeed fatty liver disease but let's start if you don't mind by talking in simple terms if you don't mind about the main role of the liver in our body why is it so important well, um, you know, the liver is one of the most important organs in the body, right? It's it's a it's the second largest organ in the human body after the after skin, and it it supports multiple functions. So some of these uh, are maybe well known, but not all of them, presumably. So it produces bile, which helps with digestion. It makes essential proteins and enzymes. It helps convert nutrients into energy. It also helps create substances that help your blood clot, and perhaps most importantly, also helps you resist infections by making immune factors, removing bacteria and toxins. So it serves a multitude of vital functions. So can I ask then, how bad can things get when it's, uh, it's not working as it should? How, how serious is fatty liver disease in particular, which is what we're talking about today? Yes, fatty liver is a very common condition that's caused by having too much fat build up in your liver. So a healthy liver typically contains about 5% or less fat. So when when the fat content of the liver exceeds about 5%, that's when we call it fatty liver disease. Now, it's a very common condition, as you mentioned at the the, um, beginning of the show. It affects about one in four 
uh, of all human beings worldwide. And prevalence studies have shown that uh, some of the regions with the highest prevalence are here in the Middle East and in South America, where um, you know estimates uh, put it at one, more than one in three. So wow. it's what 35 percent or so. So it's it's a very very big problem in this part of the world. Now, to coming back to your question, uh, fatty liver fortunately doesn't cause liver damage in all mm-hmm. patients who have it, but a small percentage of them do progress to a more serious condition called non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, which places them at risk of developing fibrosis and eventually places them at risk of either developing liver uh, failure or liver cancer or both, thereby necessitating a liver transplant or other intervention. So let's talk then signs and symptoms. And this isn't about scaremongering, it's about education. Um, as we said earlier, a huge number of these people, and I, who knows, I might be one of them. You know, we might not be aware that this is something that we have to contend with and, and manage. What are some of the things, that, the questions you'd be asking as an expert, Dr. Shiva, to establish if this is something that someone might be suffering from? Yes, great question, Helen. So again, I think what well, it's important to recognize that fatty liver disease is asymptomatic or doesn't cause symptom in the overwhelming majority of patients who have it, unless you are at a fairly advanced stage. So it's important to keep this in mind. Um, most patients are referred to us because the disease is picked up incidentally. And oftentimes they're referred to us when the disease is at a very advanced stage where we have little to no options to offer them or the only option left is a liver transplant. So I would encourage people to keep, uh, keep in mind the fact that there are several risk factors that could place you at risk of developing fatty liver disease and more recent scientific guidelines actually encourage screening for fatty liver disease if you meet some or more of these criteria. For example, if you have type 2 diabetes mellitus, um, uh, impaired glucose tolerance or insulin resistance, you're overweight or obese, have other components of the metabolic syndrome like low LDL, high triglycerides, um, or are postmenopausal or have obstructive sleep apnea. These are some of the things that you need to keep in mind that might place you at risk of developing liver disease. And it's also worth noting that certain ethnicities, principally Hispanics and people of Asian descent, appear to have a, a greater propensity to developing fatty liver disease. I want to talk about general liver health. Are there any foods that you feel like really do not belong in a healthy liver diet? Yes, obviously we want to um, avoid alcohol consumption. And beyond that, I think there's no specific diet that we would recommend from a liver standpoint, except that we would generally recommend a diet that, avoid diet that has excess calories, uh, avoid um, saturated fat, trans fat, and maintain uh, a healthy body weight or BMI. So these are the general things we would recommend. Obviously, there are additional dietary considerations in patients who have more advanced disease with cirrhosis and liver failure they would restrict uh, uh, dietary sodium or salt intake, et cetera, that do not apply to most patients who have fatty liver disease. On that note, Helen, I also want to point out the importance of exercise, right? We recommend about 150 minutes or so of moderate to um, uh, heavy intensity exercise because time and again, it's been shown that aerobic exercise helps your liver, promotes liver health, even in the absence of weight loss. We have got Dr. Shiva with us this afternoon. Very lucky you've stolen him away from clinic there at Cleveland Clinic Abu Dhabi, where he's the Department Chair of Gastroenterology and Hepatology um, there in the Digestive Disease Institute. If you've got any questions for him relating to fatty liver disease, great opportunity to pick his brains. I want to know a little bit more um, about the treatment of it. We've had a message here asking, can it be reversed? And do you recommend a liver cleanse? We're coming to the text line after this. 
This content is for informational purposes only and does not intend to substitute professional medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. Healthy Habits. On Afternoons with Helen Farmer. Dr. Shiva Kumar is with us this afternoon. He's the Department Chair of Gastroenterology and Hepatology there at the Cleveland Clinic Abu Dhabi. And we're talking about fatty liver disease. Estimated that around one in three of us have it in the region. So we're busting a few myths and taking your questions too. Um, Dr. Shiva, a message here saying, does your doctor recommend a liver cleanse? I don't know, Dr. Shiva, do you? And what? And if you do, what could that look like? Yeah, that's a great question. I get the I get asked this question often, right? So what I tell my patients is that you know the liver. One of the key functions of the liver is to clear the body of toxins because, you know, almost every medication we eat, all the toxins get metabolized and processed in the liver. So when the liver functions to remove toxins from the human body, we don't really need to cleanse the liver. So there's really uh, the concept of cleansing the liver is really not uh, based on scientific. Uh, grounds. Now, all we need to do, and I tell my patients this, is all we need to do is take care of your liver, you know, maintain healthy body weight, exercise regularly, limit alcohol consumptions, you know, control the other variables like diabetes and, and hyperlipidemia, and the liver takes care of itself. So the simple answer to your question, uh, liver cleanse, we certainly do not recommend uh, under, you know, for any, uh, any stage of the disease. Um, I wanted to ask you about age. We talked about some of the risk factors earlier, um, alcohol, um, obesity. Um, what about age? I've read that menopausal women can fall into a risk category as well. Yes, I think um, women who have completed menopause certainly are slightly higher risk of developing fatty liver disease. But the simple answer to your question is it can happen at any age. Um, in fact, one of the principal issues that we are facing these days is increasing disease burden of pediatric fatty liver disease. So again, it's Children, a disease that doesn't... Really? It, significantly so and some of them do have advanced liver disease and, and and our colleagues in pediatrics often grapple with this so again it's it's a disease that really doesn't know any age barriers and can happen to literally anybody although uh, you know postmenopausal women are slightly higher risk compared to the other age cohorts now moving away from the liver qu- cleanse question are there any supplements um, or any you know foods in particular that can really promote good liver health anything that you take or you advise healthy healthy people to take in order to keep their liver in tip-top condition and functionality as well yes so so uh, that's a good question so again we we don't specifically recommend uh, a liver diet per se so what we tell patients is avoid diets that have excess calories um, you know minimize consumption of saturated and trans fats and maintain a healthy body weight and certainly minimize alcohol consumption right beyond that is there a specific liver diet that we would recommend the answer is no again it's a combination of a healthy diet uh, avoid excess calories um, exercise regularly and minimize alcohol consumption or avoid alcohol consumption beyond that we really don't recommend a specific diet for the liver health per se now in patients of more advanced liver disease or liver failure by all means there are certain nuances that come into play like dietary sodium mm-hmm. restriction, ensuring adequate protein, et cetera, intake, et cetera. But that's not something we would apply to patients who have earlier or milder stages of disease. Doctor, thank you so much for your time. Really, really appreciating. But I never knew that even children could get fatty liver disease. And I think just a good reminder to, it always comes back, and please forgive the word, it's always the boring stuff, isn't it? It's the good hydration, it's the good diet, the exercise, and hopefully we don't need to find ourselves in your clinic there at Cleveland Clinic. Dr. Shiva, thank you so much for your time. Really, really do appreciate it. 
healthy habits. On Afternoons with Helen Farmer. I have to tell you, WhatsApp groups, mum groups, completely inundated at the minute with posts about children's health. Many parents also blaming themselves when their children are getting sick so frequently. Is it a bug that our kids are getting from each other? Is there a, a present virus at the minute? Is there some kind of immunity situation post-pandemic? I don't know. I don't know, which is why we brought in the experts this afternoon. Um, we have joined today by Dr. Susanna Ritz. She's a specialist paediatrician from Emirates Hospital um, on the Palm. Um, first, though, we've got a clip from Mum of Two Barbara sharing her experience. I'm uh, truly affected by all these diseases going on during winter time and also in the past three years. Uh, these diseases which affect the respiratory systems, um, they uh, also come with high fever, coughing, runny nose, block noses. I know, Barbara, it doesn't end. Constant coughing at night in our house. Lots of snot kicking around. Uh, Dr. Susanna, tell us, what's coming into clinic with you? So, good afternoon, good dear afternoon. mummies, uh, daddies, nannies, grannies, everyone who is interested in the topic. Uh, this topic is really uh, hot. Uh, since the last six months, mm-hmm. I suppose. And um, so many questions uh, addressed to me uh, regarding the, the child's immunity. So what's happening? Is that anything wrong uh, with, my, with my child's uh, immune system? And um, I, I guess can, you're going to say it depends. I can tell. Yeah, <laughs> I can tell yes and no on, at the same time. Okay, can we unpack the yes then, first of all, doctor? Yes. Uh, so the yes means uh, that is something which is uh, unexpected um, in the last two years uh, because uh, there is uh, there was uh, that everything uh, affected by the COVID period and after the COVID period. So um, we kept distances, uh, there was uh, home learning, and of course we wore ma- masks uh, as Lo- well. I don't think so I've washed my hands so much in my entire life as during oh, that time. Yes. So it was uh, very and, 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 as a, and as a result, we saw a record low in flu cases and other kind of transmissible yes, diseases. This, yeah, and now we've kind of gone back to our previous ways. What's the impact been on what's coming into clinic then? <laughs> So I'd just like to uh, finish this because it's very important uh, that uh, the experts jumped to the conclusion Mm -hmm. that during the the COVID period and after the COVID period, so because we we didn't uh, get any challenges uh, from the other type of bacteria or Mm -hmm. viral infections, so our immunity got a little bit uh, lazy. Mm-hmm. So this is everything that we can see and since uh, six months that it's uh, gradually and uh, afterwards suddenly just uh, uh, we uh, have been seeing so many, so many kids who are seriously ill. We haven't expected this uh, before. Um, very high fever, up to 40, and uh, and the children's family, specifically the firstborn child's parents, never experienced this mm-hmm. kind of of problem. And uh, hospitals were full with children. I, I had so a lot of friends who had kids with RSV, with pneumonia, yeah. bronchitis. Um, you know, children who had asthma being really badly affected, and then all those kind of inconvenient 
illnesses where it is that snotty nose it's the coughing at night and they just can't seem to shift it it's passing around the, it's passing around the classroom it's passing between siblings so I wanted to ask you then when do you come and see a doctor my, I'm asking my, my little one started coughing over the weekend and I was like here we go again when is it when is it good to come and see a pediatrician such as yourself Dr Susanna so um, in the first year of the child um, the the illnesses are very infrequently happening mm. because the immune system is that inherited immune system from the mother is and the breastfeeding doing the wonderful job but after that it started uh, declining uh, this kind of immunity and as the uh, the child uh, goes to the nursery from one year of, of age typically so they start with the many symptoms and very frequent symptoms. It's uh, a petri the respiratory <laughs> Very uh, frequently happening. One day or two days uh, in and uh, the one week, the whole week or more is, uh, is off because of the, because it's of so, the child. It's so frustrating yeah. for, for a number really. of reasons. One is no one likes to see mm-hmm. their child being unwell. You're also thinking about what on earth am I spending my money on? <laughs> when they're not in nursery, you know, four days out of five. Um, and of course, all the logistics around, you know, childcare and, and that and that, those kind of aspects as well. Um, you mentioned high fevers there, you know, fevers of up, you know, 40. Um, what, what, what would you consider a, a good treatment for a low-grade fever at home? Um, what can be useful for hopefully shifting it as soon as possible? Uh, the low-grade fever doesn't need any kind of specific therapy, not even uh, any medicine. If the fever we consider low, like uh, uh, 38 um, till 38.5, it doesn't need any kind of treatment. Just be sure that your child will be very well hydrated. Just uh, try to uh, give a reassurance. And of course, if any other symptoms, you have to consider to see a doctor. But only because of the because of the fever is just the low-grade one so you don't have to um, look for uh, for the pediatrician but if the fever is very high and uh, some other uh, symptoms started developing Mm -hmm. after three days of the high fever which origin is not known and obvious you need to seek um, the pediatrician's uh, advice and some further evaluation um, I wanted to ask you about supporting our children's immunity um, and doing this when they're well as well as when they're not so well. Um, so what are some of the things that we should have in our kind of parental arsenal when it comes to boosting our children's immunity? Yes, unfortunately, I cannot give you um, only one medicine, like a wonder medicine. That which would be amazing, had. wouldn't yes. it? <laughs> I know. You'd be on a cruise so somewhere <laughs> if you had that wonder medicine, I'm sure. Unfortunately, we don't have it. <laughs> but you have to know that in the last two years, the 25 millions of mandatory vaccines uh, were not given worldwide. So please really? be so sure. Interesting. Yes. So during the pandemic, people got out of yes. the habit. I mean, I understand a lot of people have mm. health anxiety about going to a clinic or a hospital and those routine vaccinations perhaps got postponed, but still a lot of missed appointments. Yes, unfortunately. So, so, so first of all, get up to date with the vaccinations. Yes, definitely. So this is the number one that they, everyone needs to, to consider. Uh, secondly, uh, there are some um, some um, kind of uh, uh, vitamins that it's really very important for the healthy immune system. Mm-hmm. This is the vitamin D, uh, so it's on everyday basis needs to be given. 
Uh, even though that we are here in Dubai, where is the 300? Ironic. Probably yeah. 30 days of the <laughs> of the sunshine, but we protect ourselves. So mm. of course, there is the the protection means that we cover our skin. Uh, therefore, the vitamin D is not enough in our body. So please uh, supplement the vitamin D. Um, just. Um, the vitamin D um, uh, supplementation should be before one uh, year. It's uh, 400 international units. And um, after one year, it needs to be uh, increased uh, uh, 800 international units per a day, every day. Okay. So beyond this, uh, be sure if your your child is a very picky eater. Mm-hmm. I have one. Or, uh, or <laughs> some... Or some um, other issues like uh, the the vegan, mm-hmm. or the family doesn't uh, eat meat, or so. So you have to be sure that your child doesn't have anemia, iron deficiency, uh, vitamin B12 deficiency, uh, because it can uh, really affect uh, the immune system. Dr. Zan, thank you so, so much. Um, really appreciate your insights on this topic this afternoon. And for some general health advice, is there anything that you want to see children eating more of in their diet so we're not getting to the supplementation stage? What would you like to see us all putting in our shopping baskets? So everything which is healthy, of course. So every family has the different kind of uh, uh, cuisine and uh, different kind of uh, taste they'd like but the children needs uh, the quiet broad selection of the, variety. the, of the food eat the rainbow well. yes <laughs> thank you really really appreciate it dr zanarit speaking to us here from the dubai duty free tennis championship you can find her on the palm at emirates hospital and if your little ones are not very well i really really do feel your pain but some interesting insights there in terms of fe- treating that low-grade fever and when to go and see an expert We're going to be in a conversation with Jayshree Gupta. She is founder, lawyer at the in-house company, and we're having a special look at employment law. It's a big topic. We're going to try our best to answer as many questions as possible. Jayshree, thank you for making time for us today. I know you're incredibly busy. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you so much for having me on the show again. Wow. I love being on your radio. You might regret that, judging by how busy <laughs> you're going to be. I'll tell you what, lots of people, lots of questions across a whole range of topics. So what's keeping you busy when it comes to employment law at the minute? Well, it's funny you should say that because last Friday I posted a blog which said, funny that this seems to be employment law a month. Um, it's we, lots, we, lots yeah, of questions. We've had so many queries and we, I mean, the, the post was really the curious hire of a forged hiring. What? So yeah, the curious case of a forged hiring. So we basically had someone who had been hired by a company, but not really hired by a company. So they had been hired by an employee of the company pretending to have the authority to hire that individual. So we had to unravel the whole thing. Um, But I guess apart from that, Dubai is a fairly busy place at the moment. There's a lot of new people setting up. Mm -hmm. So a significant amount of virtual assets, payment processing, um, food and beverage uh, acquisition. So we, we do a lot of mergers and acquisitions and joint ventures as well. Um, and I guess it's it's the typical Dubai craziness at the moment. You know, you're right. There, there are a lot of a lot of new people. So there's a, a certain amount of making sure that you know myths are busted and everybody's aware of what the law is. But a lot of business setup, lots of 
patents, lots of you know making sure you've, your IP is totally protected. And most of the questions we've got today tend to be from the employee side as well, making sure that their rights are being um, acknowledged and held up. Um, I'm going to try and anticipate a lot of the messages we've had, which are around gratuity, because I think a lot of people have some confusion around how it's actually calculated. Jesu, are you able to give us a little bit of a dummy's guide on how to calculate gratuity here in the UAE? Um, so I guess the first thing I would say is that many people who've lived here a long time and been hired here a long time are looking at probably the old law. Mm -hmm. And that law was um, um, repealed and superseded by the new law that came in and is now fully in force. So under this law, it's quite really quite simple. You pay um, an employee 21 days um, of basic pay. So that's the mistake most people make. Yeah, they like, take their gross pay. This is what's landing yes. my account and <laughs> work out on that. So it's really basic pay. And many employers are quite clever. They would have um, at the outset of your, uh, if you, if your employment contract split up your pay into basic allowances, mm -hmm. house, uh, you know, rental allowance, car allowance or whatever. So you have to be careful about that. The 21 days is calculated on the basis of um, each year's um, service. And then after five years, you get this sort of bonus kicker where you get 30 days per year of service. Okay. And it's really that simple. There's loads of gratuity calculators on, on uh, Google if, if, if you really want to like be sure you're getting what you, you know, you're asking for. We've had this number, um, number of times on the text line um, asking about the golden visa and how does that impact your employment contract and end of, um, end of service as well. Does that effectively mean you're pressing the reset button if you go onto a golden visa or are you calculating gratuity of when you started with that company regardless of what visa you're holding? Yes, that's correct. I mean, the golden visa is simply a privilege given to many on on the basis of their talent or on, on the basis of different criteria so yes so the gratuity um, kicks in from the, the the first day of your service with that company it should not reset on the basis of your golden visa not at all okay hope that helps anyone who's uh, trying to do some some money maths right now we are talking employment law on the show this afternoon it's afternoons with me Helen Farmer uh, Jay Shri Gupta with us today answering your questions up next we're going to be answering this message saying is there any provision for parental leave when kids get sick and Dee saying our nanny is pregnant we want to offer at least three months maternity leave do we need a contract for this she might go back to the Philippines to give birth we want to make sure we both know where we stand what does the law say what does our lawyer say we'll be finding out after this your free legal clinic right now joining us here from our studio at the Dubai Duty Free Tennis Championship we've got Jay Shri Gupta she is the founder the lawyer at the in-house company and we're talking employment law in particular to the text line Jay Shri and I have to say you're a popular woman this afternoon um, anonymous message here is there any provision for parental leave when kids get sick I mean flexible working really hot topic but does the law have anything to say on what allowance a parent might have Sadly, no. I think it depends on your employer, of course, and your attitude towards your work and how it's been and how many days you've probably missed. We've all had kids and we've all had this issue. So I think you, you of course, you have annual leave entitlement, right, of 30 calendar days. So you could either take that or find a way to work with a co-worker and get your job done. Could you use your own sick days or is that a big no-no? Ooh, that's very borderline, I'm afraid. Mm, I just, I just, I'm a lawyer. Just need to ask about the grey areas. <laughs> but yeah, I think a lot depends on severity of kids illness your relationship with your employer um we well, wonder what what if it, how much it differs from company to company as well because if, if it's an international company perhaps there'd be provisions from the you know the country of origin and which ties to maternity leave questions as well that we're getting in um this is actually unrelated to a company as such but d saying our nanny is pregnant and i want to offer her at least three months maternity leave 
do we need to have a contract for this? She might go back to the Philippines to give birth. We want to make sure we both know where we stand. So before we come to the specific question, what does the law currently state around maternity leave? So the law broadened the maternity leave um, uh, allowances. So you have 45 calendar days now with full pay. You have 15 calendar days with half pay, which can include the period before or after delivery because it depends on your personal choice Definitely. if you need to make more time and you need more time or less time. And then you have an additional unpaid um, uh, leave option that you can take for uh, 45 days. So it's much, much better than it was before. Mm -hmm. But obviously, if your nanny is leaving to give birth in the Philippines, uh, you'd want to be sure she's, you know, fit, booking fit, her fit, return fit ticket back yes. and she's fit to fly. And I've also seen situations, not necessarily of nannies, but of, of anybody who comes back to work after a pregnancy and a delivery who may not be in the right mindset mm -hmm. and may end up in a position where they've left their child overseas and finds it quite difficult to work. And that's totally understandable and completely impossible to predict. Exactly. Um, and a contract can't cover that. So I love the law, but unfortunately, there are things which are, you know, very much humanity-based questions. Absolutely. So I think, as exactly that, you know, having having an understanding and having open communication about how things might change um, post post delivery. But all the very best to you and indeed to your nanny as well. Um, a message here, anonymous one, which I think is a really interesting one, given that for many companies it is bonus season. Um, Message us asking, I took a job on the proviso that a bonus was a given. The contract stated salary plus annual bonus based on performance. We've just heard that bonuses are not happening this year. Do I have any recourse? So I think that depends on what performance meant in your contract and what the employer said you could do in terms of getting your bonus. So it were the parameters and the criteria related to performance um, measurable and were they actually set out? Mm -hmm. So if you knew what you were getting into, if you didn't pay attention to the fine print, then the employers got you, I'm afraid. But if you also, also it depends on if you had a bonus last year. So if you had a bonus last year, you've performed the same last year, you've performed better, or for whatever reason, the employer is not giving you the bonus, mm -hmm. you may be able to raise that with them. Interesting, because as you say, often these things are stated and measurable. You know, you have your KPIs, you might have had a discussion about, yes, you have exactly, you know, hit performance, but as a company, we're not able to give bonuses this year. Is, is that something that you've seen in the past? We've seen it a lot recently, unfortunately. Um, I think people want to hold on to their jobs in this current market, no mm. matter how buoyant it is and how bad the traffic is. There is still a level of uncertainty about jobs um, in the market. We know the tech industry has struggled a lot. Mm -hmm. um, I believe there's more than 150,000 thousand people in the tech industry who've been laid off in the region so I think that's to be borne in mind but I think if the employer is just using you as an example to say oh she or he didn't accept bonus and everyone should follow that that route or whatever reason and I think if you did agree criteria and you met that criteria you're you're good to stand your ground but otherwise it's a fine line you know um, coming back to maternity leave had a message on this saying if I decided not to return to work at the end of my maternity leave, do I have to serve my notice period or does it not apply? But if, I'm, if I'm offered a new job while on maternity leave, how would that work? Would I just tell my current employer that I don't wish to return and start the new job? So the law isn't very clear. I wish it was very clear on people leaving during maternity leave because that is another question we get from both employers mm, and employees. Sure. And also you can have a change of heart. As I just said, you go through a number of things, you have oh, family issues, massively. or sometimes the employer might have sort of replaced your role. Mm -hmm. And when you come back, you're not particularly happy about that or you hear about it. So I think the answer to that probably is if I was advising someone would be to say, you must serve your notice period in the normal course. 
um, and you should have a frank discussion with your employer so that you're not prejudiced because effectively this could result in some sort of um, you know some sort of investigation or some sort of complaint against you which could jeopardize say your end of service gratuity or or just like a reference letter you might need from your employer Absolutely. so from a practical perspective I wouldn't say oh I'm on employee I'm on maternity leave I can do what I want I would I would just you know bear in mind what my contract says. Coming back to bonuses, um, a message saying, can a discretionary bonus be contested? Ooh, I don't know. Do you? Um, contested by the employee, I'm assuming, is your question. Um, I don't see why not again. Um, I think the, uh, a discretionary bonus is exactly that. It's to the discretion usually of the employer, which can be very tainted depending on the economic conditions, market conditions, and you know somebody outperforming you, frankly, as well. So sure, I always talk. It, talking is best. Talking is best. Well, we're doing lots of it this afternoon. It is all about employment law. Shreeshi Gupta is with us today. She is the founder of the in-house company. Uh, we are going to be going to your text next. It's your legal clinic this afternoon. Absolute pleasure to have you with us and to be joined here live from the Dubai Duty Free Tennis Championship by the lawyer, the founder um, of the in-house. We are joined this afternoon by Jay Shri Gupta, the in-house company with us. Tell you what, you haven't had a coffee, you've had some water. It's going to be a busy one. Right, to the text <laughs> line, Jay Shri. Um, David saying, I'm being transferred to the London office, same company. Is end of service still payable? So two things. Um, I don't know if David worked in the London office before he moved here, but it may be that his contract is from London and he is being given pension plans or other plans, which may mean he signed off on his UAE portion of gratuity. If not, generally speaking, yes, David should ask for his gratuity before he leaves the UAE, because once he's re-employed in England, mm. then the UAE law would not apply to him. So better to, to cash out before you get on the plane? Yes, if you can. I mean, sometimes the employment is continuous. Well, we've seen it the other way as well, we right? Have. So uh, someone in the UAE who came from a London contract or a, a, another country contract and is continuing to serve in the company locally, asked for gratuity payments for the entire period with, with the same company. So that's unfair to the company as mm -hmm. well because that's not what they signed up for. Mm -hmm. So both ways. But yes, if you can tie up your loose ends for UAE under UAE labor law, perfect. Go for it. All right. All the very best in London, David. Um, a message here from Badal saying I've been looking to change my job I'm hunting all the job offer sites finally someone called me from an Indian number telling me I got an offer from a US based company I need to pay a one time subscription to open the file following that he asked me to pay for an online test all of this went through they sent an offer letter and now they're asking to pay an additional amount to close the file then I'll be able to meet someone from the company which has an office in Dubai it seems all those payments will be refunded once I'm on board I think it's a scam I've got no idea how to report them is this a scam Oh, well, that's most hard to likely. know, most likely. Yeah, I mean, no one asks for money to open your file. Open your file for what? To do exactly what? If they wanted you and you met the qualifications, then you should be meeting your employer. It's a little bit like my curious case of the forged hire, right? Mm -hmm. That I was talking to you about. So I'd be very careful. Um, I guess there's, there's sort of a, like a customer complaints or like a, um, a consumer forum you could probably report them to. But if they're working internationally, it's going to be very hard for Dubai police to track them down and shut them down. I think even talking about it now is actually a really useful way to know that there are companies out there looking to trap often desperate job seekers. Um, so please, please, please don't part with any money. 
go into it with your eyes open. It's probably unlikely that you're going to get this money back, but that I would imagine. Uh, yeah, yeah. And know your employer. That's what we've, we've been telling people. Do your due diligence on whoever's trying to hire you as mm -hmm. well. I mean, can they pay you? Are they really hiring you? Do they have the authority to sign your employment contract? You know? Which ties into this message we've had here from Jay saying, please help. I've been working for a company for three months and still no visa. Thankfully, they are paying me. I don't want to rock the boat because I really need the job, but I also really need a visa. Can I report them anonymously or how do you suggest I proceed? Uh, yes, you can report them to the MOHRE, which is the Ministry um, uh, you know, of Human Resources and Emeritization. Um, however, probably you need to get to the bottom of why the company isn't giving you the visa. Is there a quota problem, uh, as in they've got too many visas or they're not renewed their trade license or something? Because ultimately, even if you do complain, it is that company that needs to give you the visa. And the MOHRE may not be as quick, perhaps, because this is not like a typical labor law issue. It's just sort of an anomaly, so to speak. Mm -hmm. But it is illegal for companies in the UAE to employ you without a valid uh, visa, a work visa and a work permit. So you're, you're in the right. Okay, all the very best. Um, a message asking about resigning. What are the consequences for resigning and then leaving before the end of your notice period? I know you can come to an agreement and reduce it when both parties agree, but I'd like to know what if the employ employer doesn't agree and you have to leave earlier because the new employer doesn't want to wait? Well, I think you run the risk of not getting all the payments from your previous employer mm. if you don't toe the line in terms of your notice period. So if you're willing to forfeit something, then fine. But again, coming back to the visa question, you're probably on the visa of your old employer. And you do need to toe the line to some um, a level for sure to be able to get your visa cancelled. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you will be working illegally for a new employer. Yeah, good point. Um, yeah, so I, I think it's really hard to say I resign and I leave. You just you do need to like tick the boxes before and, you leave. And I think in a prospective employer, a new one, should respect that. that you, surely Absolutely. they want to employ someone who is going to you know do their you know behave behave properly as Absolutely, a respectful employee. Yeah. I mean, I've had situations where a new employer might approach an old employer and say, look, we have a project. Mm -hmm. I really need this person. They're amazing. Uh, we'd like them on board. Is there something we can do to help this situation? We want everybody. Nobody wants to burn bridges. Anyway, Absolutely. it's a small place, right? The UAE. So there we go. That might be one option. Um, a question here just saying, um, I'm being asked to do overtime, but with absolutely no compensation. There's nothing in my contract about overtime. Do I have the right to refuse the work? Yes, you do. If you're in the retail business, it's going to be a little bit hard because the retail business has um, obviously certain challenges. Um, but there are rules in the new labor law um, on overtime, which should be capped at 144 hours in every three week period and should not exceed two hours a day, etc., etc. And there is compensation for that. But if there are circumstances which do not permit you to do overtime, and I guess, again, practically speaking, because I'm a kind of a practical kind of person, you don't jeopardize your job mm -hmm. and your position, mm -hmm. then, yeah, by all means, say no, it doesn't work for you. Uh, Jayshree, I just wanted to ask you about some recent changes, which is about employers converting uh, to limited employment contracts. What do people listening today need to know as employees? Is there any onus on them to action anything? Or indeed, what, what's the latest? Um, the latest is the deadline has been extended to the end of the year. Okay. Um, so employers have a little bit more time to convert these contracts. I think also employers are looking at uh, periods where employees' visas expire so that the uh, okay. visa expiry renewal slash new contract is so sort of all... So you're not possibly doubling up. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, it's much easier for calculation of everything and for your HR records. But um, uh, provisionally, everybody needs to move to a three-year contract or a longer fixed-term contract. 
contract mm -hmm. and then that contract can either roll over for similar terms or again can you know different terms can be agreed in terms of re renewal of those contracts and Ali asking about the um, employee insurance scheme as well, which is still on my to-do list, um, which is something that is very much on the onus of the employee to sign up for that scheme. I understand that fines haven't been issued as yet and that's been pushed back a little bit as well. Yes, I, I suspect it will be pushed back till people have a full understanding of the law and what it requires mm -hmm. and the benefits that the new law provides to people who might suddenly find themselves unemployed mm -hmm. and it gives it a little bit more time. Okay. So I suspect that will be the case. And I guess my last question to you is when do you instruct a lawyer? You know, we're talking there about, you know, perhaps challenging some things with HR, about knowing your rights, checking your contract. When do you feel like sometimes it's to, it's, you know, you need to bring in the big guns? Um, so again, I assume you're asking this from an employee perspective. So um, I think when your employer brings in his lawyer mm -hmm. and starts to say, you know, oh my gosh, you need to deal with a lawyer now and washes his hands off you, you know, mm -hmm. kind of the trouble is brewing. Okay. So at that time, you may need to counter the, the, the sort of the legal person on the other side. Fight fire with fire. <laughs> Last question. This is an anonymous one that's just come in that hopefully we can help with saying, I'm unsure as to when my probation ends my contract which is edec approval um and uh, mores approval as well states um all different start dates which one do i hold on to i want to resign within my probation period and hr is not being straightforward so a number of different probation dates um but what to do the what to do the right thing resign before the probation period ends which one should you be honoring is there a, a kind of a gold standard as such well the maximum probation period you can be put on is six months um, but you do need to know when you started and what the probation period is mm -hmm. or resign now immediately and find out what happened because in any case you're not going to be entitled to gratuity because you haven't worked for a year um, so you're not going to lose much uh, except you need to give 14 days notice to your employer otherwise potentially there's a new one-year ban if you do resign in your probation period without the correct notice period. Interesting because I mean you've been here a long time I've been here a long time but less and there was a lot of talk about bands you know kind of back in the day and I haven't heard about them so much recently well I know and I also found it odd to read that in the new law and the, the regulations because we are moving forward I mean we've made great strides towards moving forward with the employment law mm -hmm. so that the concept of banning somebody simply because they choose to resign in their probation period seems a little bit over the top mm -hmm. if I can call it that um, so I think you do need to be careful. Again, I haven't seen any bans given. And I think in today's day and age where employers are like, look, if this is not working out, I need to be sensible. Please go. Totally. Find you another job. You don't want to job. be here. We don't want yeah. you to be here. <laughs> exactly. Life's too short. Exactly. Um, Jesse, if anyone wants to seek your advice, what's the best way of getting in touch with you? Because we've had a lot of messages today we haven't had time to get to. So if people want some one-on-one -on -one insights, um, how can they I, I think you? you can contact me on my LinkedIn, um, you know, Jayshree Gupta or the in-house company, which shortens to Think. Um, T-H-I-N-C with a C, exactly. Um, and you'll also see uh, every Friday we post a video because um, I know many people don't like to read our blog, so we do a video blog. And perhaps one of your questions might pop up there. Or if you come up with something really interesting, I'll give you full credit you if you want the, it. You could be the inspiration <laughs> for the next viral video. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Um, and as I said, we'd love to come back. I feel like we've only kind of scratched the surface of a lot of these topics today. And thank you for downloading this episode of the Afternoons with Helen Farmer podcast. Don't forget, you can subscribe. You'll get it direct to your phone as soon as it's out. And you can listen to me live on Dubai Eye 103.8, Monday to Friday between 2 and 5 p.m.
You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.